This episode is brought to you by 8sleep. My God, am I in love with 8sleep. Good sleep is the ultimate game changer. More than 30% of Americans struggle with sleep, and I'm a member of that sad group. Temperature is one of the main causes of poor sleep, and heat has always been my nemesis. I've suffered for decades tossing and turning, throwing blankets off, putting them back on, and repeating ad nauseum. But now... I am falling asleep in record time, faster than ever. Why? Because I'm using a simple device called the Pod Pro Cover by 8sleep. It's the easiest and fastest way to sleep at the perfect temperature. It pairs dynamic cooling and heating with biometric tracking to offer the most advanced but most user-friendly solution on the market. I polled all of you guys on social media about the best tools for sleep, enhancing sleep, and... 8sleep was by far and away the crowd favorite. I mean, people were just raving fans of this. So I used it and here we are. Add the Pod Pro cover to your current mattress and start sleeping as cool as 55 degrees Fahrenheit or as hot as 110 degrees Fahrenheit. It also splits your bed in half so your partner can choose a totally different temperature. My girlfriend runs hot all the time. She doesn't need cooling. She loves the heat and we can have our own bespoke temperatures on either side, which is exactly what we're doing. Now for me and for many people, the result, eight sleep users fall asleep up to 32% faster, reduce sleep interruptions by up to 40% and get more restful sleep overall. I can personally attest to this because I track it in all sorts of ways. It's the total solution for enhanced recovery. So you can take on the next day feeling refreshed. And now my dear listeners, that's you guys, you can get $250 off of the pod pro cover. That's a lot. Simply go to eightsleep.com slash Tim or use code Tim. That's eight all spelled out E-I-G-H-T sleep.com slash Tim or use coupon code Tim, T-I-M. Eightsleep.com slash Tim for $200 off your pod pro cover. This episode is brought to you by Headspace. Headspace is your daily dose of mindfulness in the form of guided meditations in an easy-to-use app. Now, you might ask yourself, very reasonably, there are 2,000-plus apps for meditation. Why would I use Headspace? Headspace is one of the only meditation apps advancing the field of mindfulness and meditation through clinically validated research. Headspace is backed by 25 published studies on its benefits, 600,000 five-star reviews, and more than 60 million downloads. So if people keep telling you to try meditation and you're like, when would I do that? When would I possibly have time? You should check out Headspace. If you have 10 minutes, Headspace can change your life. Headspace offers a really light lift and a lot of of features to keep you going, which is uh, part of the reason that I've used Headspace for years now. So whatever the situation, Headspace can really help you feel better. Overwhelmed? Headspace has a three-minute SOS meditation for you. Need some help falling asleep? Headspace has wind-down sessions their members swear by. And for parents, Headspace even has morning meditations you can do with your kids. Headspace's approach to mindfulness can reduce stress, improve sleep, boost focus, and increase your overall sense of well-being. And it really starts with very, very simple practices. And if you look at my case, for instance, I just went through one of the basics today with the co-founder, Andy. I think it's Puticum. Could be Puticum. I'm not sure. But former monk turned into co-founder of Headspace has the most soothing hypnotic voice imaginable. And I did a three-minute meditation, something like that. It's easy 
it's fundamental, and it always puts me in a better space. So I'm going through the basics. Even though I've meditated for years, I'm going through the basics once again. And I would suggest to anyone that they consider starting there. Headspace makes it easy for you to build a life-changing meditation practice with mindfulness that works for you on your schedule anytime, anywhere. We all want to feel happier. We all want more peace. And Headspace is meditation made simple. Go to headspace.com slash Tim. That's headspace.com slash Tim for a free one-month trial with access to Headspace's full library of meditations for every conceivable possible situation. <laughs> you can break glass in case of emergency in almost any situation and find something on Headspace. This is the best deal offered right now for Headspace. So check it out. Go to headspace.com slash Tim today. Optimal minimal. At this altitude, I can run flat out for a half mile before my hands start to shake. Can I answer your personal question? Now what is it in a broken time? What if I did the opposite? I'm a cybernetic organism, living tissue over metal endoskeleton. Hello, boys and girls, ladies and germs. This is Tim Ferriss. Welcome to another episode of The Tim Ferriss Show. And my guest today is one of my favorite guests, Michael Pollan. You know him on Twitter at Michael Pollan, P-O-L-L-A-N. He is the author of eight books, including How to Change Your Mind, which has changed many minds indeed, Cooked Food Rules in Defensive Food, The Omnivore's Dilemma and the Botany of Desire, all of which were New York Times bestsellers. A longtime contributor to the New York Times Magazine, Pollan teaches writing at Harvard University and the University of California, Berkeley. In 2010, Time Magazine named him one of the 100 most influential people in the world. His newest book is This Is Your Mind on Plants. You can find him at michaelpollan.com on Twitter and Instagram, at michaelpollan, at michael.pollan, respectively. Michael, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Tim. Good to be back. I thought we would begin in the beginning, go back to the archives, and I came across something titled My Two Gardens. And I would like to ask you about your first garden or childhood garden, since that will be, I think, a, a great launching point for many, many topics in our conversation. Yeah, well, gardening is really the germ of all my work. It's funny, uh, the, the piece you're alluding to appeared in Forbes, but it was an adaptation from my first book, A Second Nature, A Gardener's Education. And this came out in 91. And it was really the story of my learning how to garden, which was also the story of my learning how to think about nature and my engagement with the natural world. I gardened as a little kid. I had a garden when I was eight years old. I called it a farm, and it was right <laughs> along the uh, the side, the edge of my parents' suburban tract house on Long Island. And anytime I could, and I had a kid across the street who would do the heavy labor for me. He was, you know, always happy to do what I told him to do, and and I would do the planting. And uh, if I could grow two or three strawberries, I'd, I'd put them in a Dixie cup and sell them to my mother. So it was a business too. <laughs> But my love of gardening came from my grandfather, my maternal grandfather, who was a, a Russian immigrant who had come here to escape conscription, basically, in Tsarist Russia. He came in 1917. He started out selling potatoes from a, a horse-drawn cart on Long Island and gradually got into the produce business and became a wholesaler and then started buying farms, the farms of the farmers he knew who wanted to get out of the business on Long Island, turned those into shopping centers 
it was a classic story, but he never lost his love of produce. You know, he grew in his garden. It was huge. I mean, there were just two of them and they grew enough to have a farm stand. And I loved working in his garden and I loved harvesting more than anything. And I didn't have much in common with him except this. In fact, we didn't get along that well through the teenage years. He thought I was too much of a hippie and my hair was too long. And he really was, you know, kind of a right wing guy. But in the garden, we really connected. And that experience of growing something and then actually creating something of value that you could eat or sell, in my case, to my mother, was, was just so gratifying. And there began my love of plants. And so this first book was an attempt to look at what, what I was learning in the garden. And I was making a lot of mistakes. I got into a, a, a war with a woodchuck. And in fact, that was the <laughs> first essay I wrote about. This woodchuck, I planted my uh, seedlings one spring. We had bought, we bought a house in Cornwall, Connecticut when I was 30, I guess. And I started gardening on the weekends there. And every time I planted, this woodchuck would emerge from his burrow and wipe out everything I'd planted. So I went to war. I mean, I, you know, I found his, his burrow. I did a lot of research. I understood that I found that they're actually, even though they look like slobs, if you've ever seen a woodchuck or a groundhog, same thing, they're fat and they can barely see. And they kind of tootle around with their belly, you know, scraping the ground. Um, but they're, they're, they're clean, you know, they're obsessed about cleanliness. And so I, I, I poured, molasses and creosote down their hole and because I found the the hole and I'm thinking that they would be disgusted and move away but they just dug a new hole right next to it and I escalated this war uh it was like Caddyshack <laughs> it was a lot like Caddyshack when that movie came out I identified completely with Bill Murray but I got into this escalating series of steps I got angrier and angrier that, you know, here I was, the more evolved creature with the bigger brain, being thwarted by this idiotic, you know, rodent. I don't know if they're rodents, but I thought it was a rodent. So it was my horticultural Vietnam, basically. And I kept getting in deeper and deeper and deeper. At one point, I was driving along the, the road nearby, and I found a, a flattened woodchuck on the side of the street. And I had an idea. And I got a piece of cardboard, and I scooped the, uh, the roadkill onto the cardboard, brought it home, shoved it into the hole thinking this would send a message, you know, it was kind of like Don Corleone, you know, <laughs> with the horse's head <laughs> in The Godfather. Didn't work. I was finally reduced to pouring, you know, half a gallon of gasoline down the burrow and lighting a match and throwing that in there. And I, and I poured the gasoline down. I know people think of me as an environmentalist writer. Um, and, uh, <laughs> And I, and I just gave some time for the gasoline to go through all the different rooms. And I had an image in my head because they have all these different rooms. They have a latrine, they have a food room, they have these elaborate burrows. Then I threw a match and I never took physics in college. I was an English major and I didn't realize that fire would not go away from oxygen <laughs> as I wanted it to go. So the flames shot the other way. And there was this fountain of flames that comes out of this hole in my garden. And I was, you know, almost incinerated myself, thrown back and shocked into a recognition that this is not the way to deal with the natural world. <laughs> <laughs> and what I was doing was very much in sync with what our species does when we feel thwarted by nature, which is we feel we have the right and we're the smarter creature. And I realized at that moment 
and I wrote an essay about this, originally appeared in the New York Times Magazine, that what's happening in the garden is a microcosm of our engagement with the natural world for better and worse, and in this case, worse. And that I could use the garden and gardening as a place to explore our relationship to nature. In general, American nature writers go to the wilderness, right? They go to the, they go to the desert, they go to the forest, they go to places where you just stand back and look. But in the garden, like the farm, we have no choice but to engage. We have to act if we're going to get what we want. So how do we act? What are the ethics? What is, what's the morality? And that began this path of, you know, examining our relationship to other species in the garden, including plants. I am going to come back to gardening quite selfishly to ask you for some advice because I am planning on, over the next year, doing my first gardening. Now, we probably don't have the scope to explore that fully in this conversation, but just to plant that seed, pun intended, I'm going to, to so mention So you it. now have some land. I do. You have some land. I do, yes. And Excellent. We're going to return to the concept of garden as microcosm very shortly. But before we do, you could write on anything that you choose. And this is your mind on plants. How did you arrive at this particular book? Because you have carte blanche. You could do whatever you want. I mean, it's my first love, you know, writing about plants and my interest in psychoactives and my interest in plants kind of come together in this book. In Botany of Desire, there was a chapter, which is a book that looks at our, the symbiotic relationship of people and plants, how they change us and we change them. And I have always been fascinated by this one weird particular use to which we put plants. And this is true for most cultures, probably 95% of cultures around the world have some plant or fungus they use to change consciousness, to achieve transcendent experience. That's a very peculiar thing, because if you think about it, why would that be adaptive? It could be the opposite. You know, when we take drugs, when we change consciousness, we're more vulnerable to accident, to predation, we lose our, a lot of our defenses. So there's a danger in changing consciousness, in a radical way anyway. Yet we do it, and people have always done it. The only culture that's been documented that doesn't have a plant to change consciousness are the Inuit in Greenland, because nothing good grows where they live. That's the only reason. <laughs> that human desire has been fascinating me since I first grew cannabis when I was you know, quite young. So I wanted to do a deep dive into it. And I wanted to look at three plants that produce important psychoactives, an upper, a downer, and an outer, as I call it. So I chose caffeine, which is, we don't even think of that as a drug, as a psychoactive, as an addictive substance. But of course, it is. And I have it right here. I'm consuming it as we speak. That makes two of us. <laughs> so. I'm holding up a mug of coffee. <laughs> And then the other two I chose were opium, which has a particular relevance now because of the opiate crisis. But that is actually a piece that I wrote many, many years ago at the height of the drug war. And that piece is kind of a parable of the absurdity of the drug war that we can talk about in, in more detail. And then the, the third one, I wanted to do a psychedelic and a psychedelic I hadn't written about and that nobody's written much about since Aldous Huxley, and that is mescaline. And my interest in that one grew out of all the reporting I did in the psychedelic community and asking people, what's your favorite psychedelic? And to my surprise, 
the answer I heard more than any other was mescaline. And nobody seems to have it. Nobody seems to use it anymore. And yet it was everybody's favorite. It was the master material, somebody told me. And I remember, um, I don't think I should use his name, but somebody we both know who's younger than I am saying, why have you been hiding this from us for all these years? The hippies were hiding the best drug. <laughs> Keeping it all <laughs> for it themselves. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, so I, I chose those three as representing different dimensions of our relationship to psychoactive plants and to remind people that this is part of our engagement with the natural world as much as eating is, as, as much as you know, clothing ourselves in fibers produced by nature. We use plants to alter our minds. And how incredible is it that plants have evolved the precise molecular key to unlock your consciousness? That's really weird. That's, I think it's one of the great mysteries of, of nature. So Anyway, I thought it'd be fun to write about. This book is more of a romp than the last one. You know, there's, I mean, yes, there's science and history, but it's, these are really personal stories of my engagement with these plants and what these plants have to teach us. So I wanted to do something that was very close to my heart and that would be enjoyable and take me back to the garden. Were there any other plants or molecules that came close as candidates, but ultimately didn't make the cut? Did you consider others? Yeah, I did. Well, for psychedelics, you know, I thought about writing about 5-MeO-DMT. I thought about it. Of course, it's not a plant. It's a toad. I could have done salvium, divinorum. You know, there were a whole lot, but I wanted something that had a really rich history that has changed the course of history. And mescaline has, and not just for our culture, but for Native American culture. We can talk more about that. So actually, it wasn't like when I was writing Botany of Desire, which is a portrait of four plants, that I had like 10 I could have done, and I had a settle on corn and apples and tulips and cannabis. There was something that loomed large about these three to me. Caffeine, because that is really the drug I have the deepest involvement with. And it was actually Roland Griffith, who we both know, who the, the psychedelic researcher at Hopkins, who, you know, before he started working on psilocybin, he was the world's leading researcher on caffeine. And I remember the first time I interviewed him, I saw all these books about coffee in his, in his study, and uh, I was very curious about his interest. He gave me the idea for the experiment at the heart of that piece, which is he said, you can never understand your relationship to a drug, to a psychoactive substance, unless you get off it and stand back and look at it. Because if you're an addict, he doesn't use the word addict, but if you're dependent, you will never see it accurately. And so that was the challenge to me, which is at the heart of that piece is like, could I abstain from coffee for three months without going crazy and losing my, my livelihood <laughs> as a writer, <laughs> which I nearly did. We're going to dig into all of those. It strikes me that those three, as you noted, the, the three options that you chose allow you to do, in a sense, what you do best, which is take these layers of the scientific, the philosophical, the political, journalistic, the historical, and layer them properly, right? So not all candidates are created equal in that sense. No, and they don't all have, the, they don't all have quite enough layers. Right. I, I think that's exactly right. And that is key to my method, which is not to privilege any one way of analyzing something. I don't think the scientists have all the answers. I don't think the poets have all the answers. But if you multiply lenses, you suddenly get the full picture. And that's what I love doing as a writer. So you have many types of stories 
in this book. You have the fascinating, the hilarious. You also have, as you know from my my well-caffeinated texts to you at one point, stories that I consider quite terrifying. And I wanted to read, this is from page 16 and 17. I'm just going to read a, a, a snippet. And then I want to talk about Jim Hogshire or Hogshire. And oh, I yeah. want you to tell the, that story. So this is on page 16. In an April 2016 article in Harper's Magazine, Legalize It All, Dan Baum recounted an interview that he conducted with John, is it Ehrlichman or Ehrlichman? Ehrlichman. 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 In 1994. Ehrlichman, as you will recall, was President Nixon's domestic policy advisor. He served time in federal prison for his role in Watergate. Baum came to talk to Ehrlichman about the drug war, of which he was a key architect. And this is, this is uh, one paragraph, and then we're going to hop back to you. This is a quote from Ehrlichman. Quote, you want to know what this was really all about? Ehrlichman then explained that the Nixon White House, quote, had two enemies, the anti-war left and black people. This is a direct quote. We knew we couldn't make it illegal to be either against the war or black, but by getting the public to associate the hippies with marijuana and blacks with heroin and then criminalizing both heavily, we could disrupt those communities. We could arrest their leaders, raid their homes, break up their meetings, and vilify them night after night on the evening news. Did we know we were lying about the drugs? Of course we did, end quote. That is an insane, just the fact that those are spoken words quoted is incredible to me. Yeah. That's all you need to know about the drug war. There it is in a kernel. The real reason for it, the fact that it had nothing to do with public health. Did he mention public health? Did he mention people suffering with addiction? No. Uh, Or overdosing? No. It was simply political. And we've known long before Nixon that the drugs that get criminalized are the ones that are used by troublesome populations. I mean, the reason they went after cannabis was because of Mexicans and blacks who were using it. And the drug war has always been about politics. And there is about as blunt a revelation of that fact as you can imagine. Yeah, I remember reading that. And uh, that that quote got quite a bit of publicity when it came out. Unfortunately, Baum died. And I, I wanted to interview him about that interview. And he died last spring or last fall, and I wasn't able to. But it's, I think there are two things where the, whatever you think of the drug war, it collapses when you look at them. One is that looking at Nixon really starts at 1970. There are his motives. He needs to criminalize these two troublesome populations. The other is the fact that while we were fighting this drug war, which reaches really its peak in the Clinton administration, you know, whatever you think about Clinton, his crime bill led to mandatory minimum sentences and led to mass incarceration. And the drug war was being fought with particular vigor during the the 90s. And it was all part of Clinton's triangulating to the right. And this is part of the story I tell in in the opium chapter, is that while the DEA and other authorities were going after small-time drug dealers and and individuals even trying to grow a little opium for themselves, Purdue Pharma was introducing in 1996 OxyContin and leading to eventually the opiate crisis because they marketed opiates so aggressively and convinced the medical establishment that pain was being under-medicated and that this was a safer, non-addictive opiate when they knew precisely the opposite. This has come out in court cases. So the biggest public health crisis during the period of the drug war involved legal drugs, not illegal drugs. So, you know, the government was looking at the wrong problem. 
and the FDA had approved OxyContin. And yes, many people who began with legal opiates, like most heroin users, eventually transition because they can't get access to legal opiates. And then they transition to uh, street drugs and then bump into things like fentanyl and the likelihood or possibility of overdose. But I think nothing points up the absurdity of the drug war than the two things that were happening in the year 1996 that I wrote about, one of which you haven't heard about, which is Jim Hogshire. And the other is, you know, the opioid crisis. So this is a very personal, I mean, the the opiate or, uh, I mean, it really isn't, I guess, opiate opioid discussion is a very personal one for me uh, because my best friend from growing up on Long Island died of a fentanyl overdose. So I, I have yeah. firsthand experience with how easily these, and this is obviously simplified, but super strength opioids can do damage. I know another person who had an accidental overdose of fentanyl. So the sort of the extent and growth of this problem is pretty staggering. I mean, at some point in the book, you compare the stats kind of then and now, and it's, it's really unbelievable. And I think to, to jump into the microcosm, to explore the macrocosm, Jim Hogshire, could you please tell me yeah. and tell the listeners about Jim and how he came onto your radar? Yeah. So the, this story about growing my own opium began with an editor friend sending me an underground press book called Opium for the Masses. I was writing columns about my garden, the pieces that became second nature. And my editor, a, a fellow Austinite named Paul Tuff, said, hey, this book is like up your alley. And he sends me Opium for the Masses and I read it. And it was like, this is so cool. I can grow my own opium, you know? And like most gardeners, I just want to see if I can do it. You know, I wasn't interested in consuming opium. Now, it just just for clarity, because opium is going to sound scary to a lot of people, but when you say grow opium, what do you mean? <laughs> okay. Uh, it does sound scary, I guess. Uh, it means growing poppies. Popover somniferum, which is an a- annual poppy. You can buy the seeds at a garden center. You can order them online. You can scrape them off a poppy seed bagel. Those are poppy seeds, and they grow this plant, this beautiful plant with with paper-thin petals and this beautiful seed pod after the petals fall off and this gorgeous lettuce-like leaves. When the petals drop and that seed pod forms and it looks like a piece of sculpture, if you slit that green skin of that seed pod with your fingernail or with a blade and wait 60 seconds, you will see this white latexy looking sap emerge, leak out of it, bleed from it. That is opium, pure and simple. And it dries brown and you can roll it off and you have opium. Now, you need a few thousand of those pods to get a usable amount of opium. If you do it that way, and it takes a, it's a lot of work, and that's one of the reasons it, it's grown in places with very cheap child labor who can go through fields slitting every pod. But it grows just as well in your garden. Anyway, he was explaining all this, which I didn't know. And he was saying a better, much better way to use it is to make a tea from the poppy seed heads and just let them dry, put them in a coffee mill or grinder somehow and soak them in hot water. And you'll have this tea. And in fact, this tea is drunk in the Arab world uh, during funerals and as a mild painkiller. You know, it's not a 
big experience, but it's a very mild narcotic. For taking the sadness away. For taking the sad, lifting the sadness. Yeah. So I thought, well, you know, this, I get a column out of this. This could be kind of fun. So I order some seeds and I start communicating with Hogshire. I got a hold of his uh, email and asking some questions. And did he have any seeds he could spare? And we're going back and forth. And then suddenly I get a call from my friend, Paul, who I don't know how he had this information, that Jim has been arrested and charged with manufacturing narcotics. The only evidence the police have, this happens in Seattle, they bust into his apartment, they bring a SWAT team, you know, 20 guys with guns and, you know, ninja suits. And this guy is sitting there with his wife and they bust in and throw him up against the wall. What do they get him with? He's got a bunch of dried poppies from the florist shop. Okay, you've you've seen these flower heads in in every florist shop because they look beautiful in arrangement. And his book. His book proves his intent to take those poppy seeds and make a a narcotic with it. This is where things get super crazy. Yeah, please continue to expand on this. So it turns out that It's perfectly legal to grow opium poppies, possess the seeds and grow the poppies, unless you have knowledge that you are growing a scheduled substance, in which case the same act miraculously gets turned into a federal crime of manufacturing narcotics that carries a five to 20 year sentence. So all your listeners- I've just endangered millions of people. (laughs) (laughs) No plausible deniability. They've lost it because if they, uh, you know, if there's any record that they heard this podcast and they're growing opium poppies, they are at some risk. The risk was a lot greater in the 90s at the height of the drug war, I might say. So, so suddenly when I hear he's been arrested and he is in jail and his wife is in jail, I'm like, oh shit, I've got this paper trail or this digital trail between him and me because we're exchanging email and they, I'm sure, seized his computer. Now, what do I do? Do I rip these things out? And thus began this summer of like fear and loathing uh, <laughs> as, I, as he's going through the court process. And I'm trying to determine how risky my little crop of poppies are. And so I start reporting and I start calling DEA agents and, and the locals police. And I say, you know, and asking them questions about it. So I'm, I, I want to grow some popover somniferum. And is it, is it okay? And, you know, they would say, well, yeah, if it's just for scenery looks, as one put it to me. And I said, well, what if I slit the poppy heads? And he said, oh, then we'll bust down your door. And I did learn that there was this quiet crackdown going on all across America, led by the DEA, who probably alerted by Jim's book, wanted to make sure this didn't become a fad. Because the myth had been spread that you couldn't grow opium poppies in America, that it had to be Turkey or Afghanistan. And that simply wasn't true. It was a cash crop for many people in the South for many years. And it turns out there was this crackdown going on, that the DEA agents were visiting florist shops to tell them to stop carrying dried poppy heads. They were calling seed companies, telling them to remove them, even though they were perfectly legal. You know, it was a a, a tense summer for me. In the end, I wrote an article about my experience and about Jim Hawkshire. I submitted it to Harper's Magazine, who had commissioned it. It was a long piece. I'd worked on it for a year. It was like 15,000 words. And I said to my editor, look, we have to get this piece lawyered. 
because I, you know, I'm confessing to a federal crime here because I did describe not just growing the opium poppies, but making poppy tea and something called laudanum, which is how opium was used in the 19th century. Basically, you dissolve the uh, the poppy heads in alcohol. So you, all you do is crush them and put them in uh, vodka. And that makes a much stronger. I learned from a USDA ethnobotanist that, yeah, if you really want to get a strong opium hit, dissolve it in alcohol, not, you know, not water. But Jim didn't include that because he was a Muslim and he doesn't drink. So the lawyer, so they, they sent it to a very prominent criminal defense lawyer in the state of Connecticut. And who, who is they at the time? Oh, Harper's Magazine, the publisher. I say, please, we have to get this piece lawyered before we publish it. And, he's, and he said, oh, I've got a friend who's, you know, a uh, criminal defense lawyer in Bridgeport where there's a lot of crime to be defended. And this guy reads the piece, drives up to our house in Cornwall. My son, who's four at the time, is off in daycare. And the lawyer and his young associates sit us down and say, well, you can't publish this piece. This is a confession. On the basis of this piece and nothing more, they could arrest you on charges of manufacturing narcotics and possession of narcotics. They could also take your house away under the asset forfeiture laws, which are still in effect. They've been diluted somewhat, but they're still in effect. If a piece of property or a car is involved in the commission of a drug crime, the police may seize it. And the standard of proof is not beyond a reasonable doubt. It's, I forget what the one, there's one standard below that, but it's not a very high standard. So there are many cases where even though if you had a son or daughter who was growing marijuana in your backyard, even if you didn't know about it, your backyard could be guilty of a drug crime and it could be forfeited. And these laws stand, they're, they're absolutely outrageous. And so they could take your house and basically wreck your life. And my wife and I are like turning white. I mean, first of all, that we have a criminal defense lawyer in our <laughs> living room, you know, because of some gardening crime I committed was amazing. And so I thought, well, that's it. A year's work down the drain. I was a freelance writer. I was counting on that paycheck. When the publisher of Harper's, who is a, a man named Rick MacArthur, very wealthy man who kind of keeps the magazine afloat. He's descended from the MacArthur's of MacArthur Foundation. He's a champion of the First Amendment. When he hears that this lawyer has advised against publication, his immediate response is, we need a new lawyer. (laughs) (laughs) And so he hires a very prominent First Amendment lawyer in New York named Victor Kovner, who represented the nation and a bunch of magazines and is, you know, one of the big voices in that world. And Victor reads the article and says, in effect, you must publish this article for the good of the republic. This is what the First Amendment exists for. This is this is critical commentary on the drug war. And I'm like, oh, really? But what about what about the jailing and the loss of my house? Eventually, he says, "Well, you could make it less antagonistic to the government by removing two pieces, two sections. One is." your recipe, where you describe how you make poppy tea. And the other is your what we would call the trip report, where you describe the effects. He said, this is particularly antagonistic to the government, given their interests. If you take those two sections out, I think your risk is not nil, but it's negligible. So I still wasn't ready to publish because I still heard that other lawyer in my ear. So I asked Rick if he would protect me, uh, Rick MacArthur, the publisher. And he had Victor draw up a contract, the likes of which no writer has ever seen, in which he says, 
if you get arrested, we will not only defend you, we will pay your wife a salary for the whole amount of time it takes for you to defend yourself and, and if necessary, serve your sentence. And if they take your house, we'll buy you a comparable new one. So I was completely indemnified, but still terrified. <laughs> and that's what we did. And we published it. And it was a cover story in uh, 97 called Opium Made Easy. And uh, nothing happened. The piece comes out. I mean, Victor calculated they wouldn't want to go after a well-funded magazine. And they would look really stupid doing it. And unlike Jim Hawkshire, they left me alone. And that's because I had the protection of, uh, of you know, a reputable publication. So I've always wanted to publish the piece the way it was written. And this is another wrinkle. It's hard to recreate the paranoia of 1996-97 around drugs. It was a very different moment. They were busting lots of people. There were 1.1 million arrests in, in 96 for, for drug crimes. And, and they were filling the prisons with people who had done things like I had done. So I got the offending pages off the property. I just said to I have a brother-in-law who's a uh, who's a lawyer and I said could you just take these to your office or in your safe or wherever uh, you know I just don't want them around and I got them off my computer I just kind of cleansed everything of these you know 7000 words or 5000 words I forget how much it was I realized I now had an opportunity to publish it the way I wanted it and so I went looking for the the missing pages and and my brother-in-law said I think I gave them back to you a few years ago and I searched my house in Connecticut which we still own and and hidden away in this closet I found this lawyer's brief container you know with the rubber band around it and in there was a um, purple floppy drive I don't know if you remember zip drives from the late oh, I do. 90s and they were hard. They weren't actually floppy. And on the outside, it had a list of contents. And one was Poppy Draft. And I said, oh, I've got it. It's here. But I don't have anything to read of Zip Drive. Do you? <laughs> I mean, those are like obsolete media. So I found a computer wizard in a neighboring town. He said, let me see what I've got in my basement. And he found a Zip Drive. And he was able to get the file off it and sent it to me. But it's an early Microsoft Word file that current Microsoft Word can't read. So then I had to find a piece of software, and there is something called LibreOffice, which will read any Microsoft file from any era. It's free software. And there it was. And it popped up on my screen one day. I was able to restore it. So that was one reason to publish it, to restore those pages. And I was happy to be able to do that and share the recipe and the trip report with people. But the other was learning later what was going on at the same moment the same summer that the dea was going around terrifying florists and and nurseries purdue pharma was introducing oxycontin and the real opiate crisis was beginning and the government was looking the wrong way i just thought that that irony was so telling that it was time to take another look so the piece now is republished in its entirety but also there's a shell I built around it about what life was like in that moment and what was going on with Purdue Pharma. In reading that chapter, that section, coming back to Rick, I kind of fell in love with Rick MacArthur, <laughs> honestly. <laughs> and uh, I know it's described a bit in the book, but why do you think he offered you all of those assurances? If you lose your house, we'll buy your house. You get put in jail, we'll pay your wife a salary. I mean, the extent to which he went was willing to go to get this published 
seems extraordinary. Was it because he had complete confidence that nothing would happen? Was it, I know you said he was a staunch supporter of First Amendment, but I can't imagine that he did this all the time. Maybe he did. No, he didn't. I mean, he was, he's a crusading publisher, like a crusading journalist. And I shouldn't speak for him, but my guess is I, he was hoping something would happen. Uh, he was hoping I would get arrested. This would put Harper's on the map. This would be a, you know, a giant case. He would take it to the Supreme Court and he would, you know, he has bottomless pockets. I mean, and publishing for him is kind of an avocation. He was always looking for the big story that Harper's would um, get involved with. I mean, we saw that just last year with the Harper's letter around free speech versus the efforts to curb free speech in the name of various woke values. He's not afraid of controversy. I mean, you shouldn't think of him as publisher. He's, he's not a bean counter. Although I should say he's incredibly cheap as a publisher with his employees. But with issues like this, he's incredibly generous. So uh, this is a guy I was lucky to get a 1% raise every year from because I, <laughs> I worked there as an editor first. And fighting, in many ways, my writing career began because I couldn't get a raise at Harper's. And one year I asked Lewis Lapham, who was the editor, instead of a raise this year, will you assign me an article? I wanted to get published in Harper's Magazine. And I'd been an editor there for a couple of years, and he was delighted to do that instead of having to fight with Rick about money. That assignment was my first garden essay. So I have Rick's cheapness to thank for my writing career. Just a quick thanks to one of our sponsors, and we'll be right back to the show. This episode is brought to you by Wealthfront. Did you know if you missed 10 of the best performing days after the 2008 crisis, you would have missed out on 50%, 5-0% of your returns? Don't miss out on the best days in the market. Stay invested in a long-term automated investment portfolio. Wealthfront pioneered the automated investing movement, sometimes referred to as robo-advising, and they currently oversee $20 billion of assets for their clients. Wealthfront can help you diversify your portfolio, minimize fees, and lower your taxes. It takes about three minutes to sign up, and then Wealthfront will build you a globally diversified portfolio of ETFs based on your risk appetite and manage it for you at an incredibly low cost. Wealthfront software constantly monitors your portfolio day in and day out so you don't have to. They look for opportunities to rebalance and tax loss harvest to lower the amount of taxes you pay on your investment gains. Their newest service is called Autopilot, and it can monitor any checking account for excess cash to move into savings or an investment account. They've really thought of a ton. They've checked a lot of boxes. Smart investing should not feel like a roller coaster ride. Let the professionals do the work for you. Go to wealthfront.com slash Tim and open a Wealthfront investment account today, and you'll get your first $5,000 managed for free for life. That's wealthfront.com slash Tim. Wealthfront will automate your investments for the long term, and you can get started today at wealthfront.com slash Tim. So the opium chapter really opened my eyes to so many different facets of the so-called drug war and the just the arbitrary nature in some respects. Although, I guess I should take that back. It's not entirely arbitrary, but the reasons for which certain compounds are vilified are not always obvious at first glance. Because we have, for instance, I'm sitting here in Austin, Texas. If you go to Austin, well, I shouldn't, <laughs> I don't want people going to hunt this down, but throughout Austin, you can find something known as Datura or Jimson weed. It grows easily in many, many places. It is an ex extremely potent and also dangerous 
psychoactive plant that has been used by many different civilizations. It's everywhere, and people die every year from trying to ingest it, or ingesting it, I should say, more accurately. So what were some of the points you hoped to underscore in the closing portions of this section, right? Because it's, it's not toxicity, clearly, that is determined. No, if you go through it, you can find it. There, there's no rational reason. I mean, if you're, if you're worried about drugs as addictiveness, then cigarettes should be illegal. Nicotine should be illegal. And caffeine should be illegal. You know, highly addictive substances that you know people fairly quickly become dependent on. If your concern is about toxicity, yes, you look at things like Datura. If your concern is just public health in general, you look at alcohol. You know, alcohol and tobacco are much more dangerous than any of the drugs we've criminalized. Now, we realize it was a folly to criminalize alcohol. It doesn't work as it hasn't worked with drugs. I mean, in general, you know, the war on drugs is won by the drugs. They keep flourishing. Telling people you can't have them does not stop. It just makes them more dangerous. I mean, your friend who died of a fentanyl overdose, I don't know the details, but that's probably a product of the drug war because. There's no regulation of what's in street heroin. And also, a lot of people die from fentanyl overdoses because often after they've broken their addiction, if people go through withdrawal and then slip, and they don't realize that their tolerance has changed dramatically. They're back to baseline, where the drug has a much bigger effect than it does after you're addicted. So there are many people have fentanyl overdoses for that reason. But point is, it's about information and it's about regulation and an illegal drug market is going to lead to lots of accidental deaths. I mean, this happened during prohibition. You know, people died from bad hooch all the time. And in fact, the government would put methanol in various over-the-counter, I forget where they were putting it, but they were using methanol to contaminate sources of alcohol so people wouldn't drink them. And they did drink them. And so, the idea that a drug war contributes to public health, and, and then you have dirty needles and the spread of AIDS, it doesn't contribute to public health. It has the opposite effect. But there are lots of examples of why is this legal and why isn't that? And it, in the end, it comes back to, I mean, I tell the story in the piece of the person that lived on my land before I bought it. It was a farmer named Joe Matches. And he was known, there were old apple trees on the property, these wonderful cider apple trees. And he made hard cider during Prohibition. And he was known for having the best Applejack. Applejack is basically hard cider that you freeze to get the alcohol fraction and remove it. He made the best Applejack in town. But this was a crime. And he was committing it on his property, not hurting anybody, but potentially himself. And in those years, when he was making Applejack, Opium was legal, and it was in patent medicines all over America. And in fact, we have evidence that the Women's Christian Temperance Union and, and, and those women who were fighting alcohol were consuming opium because they would use these patent medicines and cannabis, which was also in patent medicines. So it was a complete reversal of the current situation where alcohol is legal and opium and cannabis <laughs> were illegal. So I, I wanted to just highlight it's not totally arbitrary. You're right to catch yourself there in that we tend to criminalize the drugs used by populations that make the establishment uncomfortable, immigrants and, and the poor and, and African-Americans. But 
in terms of the schedule too, I mean, what's, you know, I mean, cannabis is still on schedule one and so are psychedelics. This means that a drug has no accepted medical use and a high potential for abuse. Neither is true. We've demonstrated the medical utility of psychedelics and to a lesser extent, actually, the medical utility of cannabis and neither are addictive. Yet there they are. So this schedule is an artifact of politics. No public health authorities would agree with that schedule. And opiates are two or three, schedule two or three, because they do have a legitimate medical use. And we should remember, even in the midst of the opiate crisis, what a blessing opiates are. Morphine, surgery would not be bearable without opiates. And the passage from this life would be much more painful for people uh, without morphine. So this is, you know, like a lot of drugs, opiates are a blessing and a curse. And we need to be able to hold both those ideas in our head at the same time. As the Greeks did, you know, they called drugs pharmakon. And that meant literally, you know, it was, they were both a blessing and a curse, depending on how, the, how they were used, a poison and an ally. I definitely want to continue with the discussion, or I should say the segue of sorts from opium to, seems like our morning favorite for both of us right now, 137-trimethylxanthine, otherwise known as yeah. <laughs> caffeine. Makes it a little, little less uh, biochemical sounding. But before we get there, I just have to say how much I admire How to Change Your Mind. Your previous book has contributed to the national and international conversations about psychedelics. And so I, I know that you've probably heard that before, but I want to say it here because things do change and conversations change. And just as populations have been targeted for persecution, sympathetic populations can be targeted for treatment, right? So in the case of, say, MDMA-assisted psychotherapy, or psilocybin, uh, you might have those suffering from complex PTSD, like veterans or victims of sexual abuse in the former, or for the latter, psilocybin, you might have end-of-life sort of existential distress and cancer patients and so on. And the conversation has dramatically changed in the last few years. And just yesterday, I think, there was a news piece that came out covering, and I want to give him credit where credit is due, Francis Collins, director of the National Institutes of Health, that's the NIH, expressed positive remarks about the therapeutic potential of psychedelics. And uh, this was in a public discussion. For that to have happened this week would have been, to my mind, I don't want to say unimaginable, but things are happening a lot faster than even I would have expected. So it's, it's so, I think, instructive to study the history to see how quickly things can change or how dramatically things can change. Because like you said, the, the Women's Christian Temperance Union would relax with their women's tonics with laudanum and <laughs> these, uh, opium uh, after, to take the edge off after a hard day of fighting alcohol. So, so I just wanted to give you a pat on the back for really contributing to a deeper, more nuanced conversation of psychedelics specifically. Thank you. You know, it has been remarkable what we've seen in the last three years. And, you know, I, I'm sure the book played a role, but also the research. You know, the research is panning out. When I wrote that book, a lot of it hadn't been published yet. I, I knew from talking to the researchers what was coming. And the publications have done a lot to move the conversation along because we have some very good 
evidence that these work for the various indications you're talking about. And we'll have evidence of other indications. It's valued other indications too. But culture does change and it can change really quickly. I used to write a lot about food and agriculture and and that conversation, you know, changed. And, you know, there are a lot of people who give me credit in both cases, which is very nice. But as journalists, you know, I think we are, we kind of have a, if we have any talent, it's that we have a sense of where the culture is moving and and that the the culture might be ready to hear this. And I had a, um, a mentor in publishing many years ago who said that as journalists, you, you know, the goal is to be a short-term visionary. If you're a (laughs) long-term visionary, no one will know what the fuck you're talking about and you will not sell any books or articles, but you want to just see around one corner. And I've always kept that in mind. (laughs) But I have to say that with regard to psychedelics, it's happened much faster than I imagined. I just see any opposition kind of melting away. And that I didn't expect. I expected a lot of pushback when, when How to Change Your Mind came out from the you know, psychiatric establishment and from mainstream media, because there was so much baggage surrounding psychedelics in our culture going back to you know, the, the 1960s. But there wasn't. And, and that's, that, I think, is really interesting. And the reason there wasn't, and I didn't understand this till later, I think we talked about this last time, is that mental health care is in crisis. The people who practice it, the psychiatrists and the therapists and psychologists, know that they don't have very good tools. They have no tools that cure anything. At the best, they can alleviate symptoms. But the drugs they have to alleviate symptoms are pretty lousy, and people don't like taking them, and they, uh, they're addictive, in effect. You can't get off uh, SSRIs very easily. And people put on weight, and they lose their sex drive, and, and it's, a, you know, the tools are lousy. And so the prospect of acquiring new tools to deal with a growing mental health crisis is attractive to just about everyone. There is at least curiosity and openness, and in many other cases, support. So I think it's a measure of desperation as much as anything. And then the media too has been so friendly. I mean, there was a cover story in the Times two weeks ago, three weeks ago, that how psychedelics are going to revolutionize psychiatry. And that's probably what Francis Collins is responding to. And that has to do, and that piece was inspired by the phase three MDMA trial that MAPS brought out, as well as Robin Carhart Harris's depression trial. Psychedelic research used to end up in, in journals you've never heard about. I mean, that first study that that Hopkins and NYU did about existential distress was in the Journal of Neuropharmacology or something, or Psychopharmacology, you know, pretty small journal based in England. Now they're in, you know, New England Journal of Medicine, uh, Robin's last depression study. And the MAP study was in, what was it, Nature Medicine or Nature Psychiatry? I forget. Yeah, but, one, of the, one of the nature yeah. sort of umbrella journals. So now this research is in the, the top tier journals. And so the, the respectability, the other measure of, of acceptance that has really struck me is all these universities starting psychedelic research centers, that Harvard is starting one at, at Mass General, I took as particularly surprising. I remember a few years ago having lunch with a young psychiatrist at MGH who was fascinated by uh, psychedelics, and, and we had lunch. And... And he was very eager to start something at Harvard. And I said, well, I'm afraid Harvard's going to be the last place to do this because of the Timothy Leary, uh, you know, embarrassment as, they, as, as the Harvard people think of it. But I was wrong. 
they're doing it too. And they've got a very interesting center getting started. So, and Yale has a center and now Berkeley has a center that I'm involved with. And the stigma is washing off. It's wonderful to see. It is. It's really exciting. And I think the the curve of change, sort of the, the, the angle of that inflection is just going to continue to point skyward by yeah. all indications, certainly with the for-profit and it's, it's important for people to keep that in mind when, you know, we get discouraged about politics and change all the time. And the model that has always struck me is gay marriage. I mean, that how that went from in the course of just the Obama administration from something that a, a national politician couldn't touch to one that he had to touch. And the culture changed around gay marriage so quickly. So we should, you know, take heart in the fact that when you tell the story in the right way, when you have good research, because the gay marriage story was like, oh, these people want what we have, not they want to be different. They want this basic human institution called marriage. And that tells a very different story about homosexuality than was in a lot of people's heads. It was, it was a brilliant thing to focus on. It seemed crazy at the time. I know a lot of activists thought that was a risky move and, and asking for the sky, but it wasn't. It was exactly the right move as was the move of starting with cancer patients. Uh, Roland Griffiths and the team at NYU, we're going to use psychedelics to help people who are dying. How can you be against that? And the fact that it worked opened up this research into depression and anxiety and obsession and because they were telling a really good story. And all I did was amplify that story and find a way to talk about it that made it much more sympathetic, I think, than it was. I mean, most of the people writing about psychedelics before I did it were, you know, in the tank already, right? They were sold on psychedelics. They were users of psychedelics. They were believers. And those are not the people you want to tell your story ever. Um, <laughs> and I was skeptical and I had one foot out and one foot in. I was terrified of using psychedelics before I started. I hadn't used them at the age appropriate time. So in some ways, I was the right messenger because I, I was more like the, the average reader than most people who would write about psychedelics. And, and that, you know, finding as a writer, finding where you stand, who you are in the story you're telling is everything in terms of getting people to, to come with you on the journey. Yeah, the, uh, those steeped in the Kool-Aid can always be a, be a liability. I remember. Yeah, they're kind of off-putting. And, <laughs> yeah, no one likes no one likes evangelists except <laughs> the people who do. <laughs> well, I remember uh, after my first book came out, and I was just becoming to engage more publicly. And someone said to me, "I wish I could remember who it was," but they said, "You know, it's not the detractors you need to worry about; it's the diehard fans who get the message who get the message wrong." And I was like, "Oh." <laughs> I don't know what that means, but it didn't take long to realize how true that yeah. how true that is. So let's let's talk about mescaline. I think that's probably the most natural segue from what we're talking about right now. You, I suppose, gave some preview of this already, but what makes mescaline interesting? What makes it different from, say, psilocybin or LSD? Yeah, from any context. Well, it has a different phenomenology, as the philosophers say. The experience has a very different quality. And I was very surprised. 
to discover that. I had read Aldous Huxley's Doors of Perception when I was working on How to Change Your Mind and before I had used a psychedelic. It's a wonderful essay. I encourage everybody to look at it. It's the first trip report, really. And, and it's influenced everybody's trip since then. <laughs> you may not have read this book, but what you saw and happened to you on psychedelics, he wrote in part because that's the way culture works, because we're looking for a vocabulary and names for what's happening to us. And we take them from literature, even indirectly. Anyway, when I read that, I thought it was an account of the er psychedelic experience, you know, that this stood for LSD experience, it stood for psilocybin experience. And that's how I took it. And a lot of people take it that way. But then I read it again, after I had used, you know, gone through the menu of psychedelics in my research. And I realized, oh, this is very specific. Uh, This is not like LSD or psilocybin. In this quality, the mescaline experience as described by him, and, and I can confirm this based on my own experience, although my own experience was probably influenced by him, it doesn't take you out of this world to another world. As people say, talk about DMT, you know, taking you to another dimension of existence, or it takes you deeper into this world. Huxley describes being able to stare at the folds of his trousers for an hour. And it made him think about folds of cloth in Botticelli's paintings. And it just makes the present richer and deeper. And, you know, he uses this metaphor of the reducing valve that he he argues that most of consciousness is editing reality, keeping things from us because we would be overwhelmed if we took in all the sensory information available to us at any one time. We just couldn't process it. Well, on mescaline, those valves open really wide and the sensory information is so intense. The colors are, you just see nuances of green or blue in in, in nature or blue in the water that you've never seen before. And you can stare at the most common object and find it absolutely fascinating and understand it in a deeper way. There was no ego dissolution. There were no hallucinations, really. It's this here and now drug in a way I wasn't prepared for. So it has different quality. Also, you can hold a conversation much more easily. You're not chemically, mescaline is closer to MDMA than it is to LSD. It's a phenylethamine. So it has that kind of warmth and sometimes chattiness and heart opening quality that MDMA has compared to, as I think of psilocybin and LSD is a a very solitary endeavor, you know, somewhere you're going deep into your head. So it had a very different quality. An interesting question is, so why isn't it used in research? And this points to another difference. It is a very long trip. It can be like 14 hours longer than LSD. And if you're really enjoying it, it is the most generous of psychedelics. If you're getting a little tired and you'd like to go to bed or have dinner, it's like, can we stop this now? (laughs) Is this enough? And I think that makes it very hard in a research context where you need a therapist present and, you know, 14 hours is two shifts, right? For the, uh, for the therapist. So it hasn't been used, although there are plans to use it in therapy. And I think it has potential. I think it has particular potential in group therapy since there is this ability to talk and that you might be able to administer in a group, which would help. But I also think the reason I was interested in mescaline too is its long history of use in the Native American community. First of all, it is the oldest known 
psychedelic in use. I mean, there is evidence 6,000 years ago in Texas, they found evidence of, of mescaline use in the form of peyote, the peyote cactus. And peyote has been used by uh, natives in both uh, Mexico and the United States for a very long time. And they've had great success treating trauma with it, treating alcoholism with it. And so I think there's a great deal to learn. I was fascinated by the Native American use of mescaline in the form of peyote. Here we have a, essentially a conservative model of drug use. And that kind of blows our minds because we think of, you know, especially psychedelics, we think of disruption of society, certainly in the 60s. So the Native American church, which is developed in the 1880s and kind of made official in 1917, is the container, the cultural container that Native Americans develop for the use of peyote. And it's a highly regulated ritual that is used in what are called peyote meetings to help people in trouble, especially with alcoholism, which has been a huge problem for Native American cultures since it was introduced, but also for spousal abuse uh, as a rite of passage, to help people deal with trauma, and to help Native Americans deal with their trauma. I mean, this is, you know, a very, this is a traumatized population, and it was particularly traumatized in the 1880s. This is when Plains Indians were being forced onto reservations. People who had lived itinerant lives in many cases, following the buffalo or the bison, and suddenly they were forced onto reservations and given rations of corn. They didn't know about corn. These weren't agriculturists, so they fed it to their horses. I mean, imagine how traumatized such a population would be. And in the 1880s, Native Americans from Texas brought peyote into Oklahoma, where, where the, that was the Indian territory where a lot of the reservations were. And they began using it in a ritual setting, and it was they found it enormously helpful, and they still find it enormously helpful. So there's a very interesting, a moral conservative use of a drug to hold a society together, to create cultural cohesion and healing. And it has a lot to teach us. And why mescaline was the right substance for that is an interesting question. So I wanted to explore that. And it raised a very hard question for me, though, which is whether I should use peyote, whether any non-native person should use peyote, because it's in very short supply. The habitat, which is runs along the Rio Grande on the Texas side, there's a lot more of it on the Mexican side. But, you know, between cattle ranching and development and poaching by, you know, psychonauts, and it's a very slow-growing plant. It takes 15 years to get from seed to usable button. It's a low-growing, very pretty uh, bluish-green cactus. It looks like a stone or a pincushion, and you actually eat it. You eat the whole thing. But there is uh, a real question about, you know, I mean, we have taken so much from these people that if we now take their peyote, which has been such an important aid to them adjusting to the situation we've put them in, I think there's a real moral and ethical question about that. I mean, it'd be one thing to grow your own peyote, I, and I wouldn't have a problem with that, but see me in 15 years and it'll be ready. And this has, of course, been become a controversy because there's a decriminalized nature movement that's very vibrant in America right now. And the idea of leaving out peyote is, is offensive to some people in that movement. It kind of complicates their message, which is that all these psychoactive plants should be legal and available to people. So there's, a, there's now a fight between the Native American church and decrim nature going on, uh, which is really unfortunate. My basic thinking is 
we should leave this one alone. And the way you the way you pay respects both to peyote and to Native Americans is not to use their sacrament. And there are other ways to get mescaline. You don't have to use their sacrament. There's San Pedro, for example, which is another cactus that comes from, from South America and is very easy to grow. And once I had my eyes on to notice it and knew what it would look like, I see it all over Berkeley where I live. And I bet it's all over Austin too. Um, it's all over the place everywhere. I remember... Uh, first becoming familiar with its look. And I noticed in San Francisco, in a sort of empty space between two apartments across the street from where I lived, a bunch of San Pedro cactus. Uh, yeah. And it's, it, it thrives. So like you said, and, and I'll just second your position, which is I, I think there's a lot of good being done by the decrim nature movements in various places. And I think that that good can exist while reserving peyote for indigenous use. And having looked at this quite closely and spent time as you have with IPCI, the Indigenous Peyote Conservation Initiative, which I encourage people to check out, IPCI. Yeah, really important initiative. And having spoken with members of the NAC, as you have, and others, leaders in the Diné or Navajo communities like Steve Benali, the availability of peyote is such that if we continue at current rates of consumption, also recognizing that for indigenous Northern American and indigenous people, greenhouse grown or hydroponic grown peyote is not viewed in the same way as a sacrament necessarily as something grown in the ground, which takes 15 years. And there are other means by which one can get mescaline. San Pedro cactus being one one good option. So, and it is legal. By the way, it's legal to grow San Pedro cactus. Yeah, and it's not legal to grow peyote. So it's that's another advantage to San. A Pedro. A lot of benefits. A lot of benefits. So, what did you do? <laughs> well, I had hoped. Th- so this chapter is very much. Uh, all three sections of this book have. There's a writing problem. It's interesting, (laughs) or a publishing problem. Um, You know, with opium, it looks like I'm not going to be able to publish and I have to self-censor. With uh, caffeine, I abstain from caffeine to the point where I can't write. And and the very very chapter is endangered by the lack of the the drug. And in uh, mescaline, there was the pandemic. And I was looking forward to going to Texas and participating in a peyote ceremony before I understood these issues and meeting all these Native Americans in person. And interviewing Native Americans on Zoom is not always easy because they don't have good internet connections on the reservation. And sometimes they have to drive for hours to get to a good internet connection so they can talk to you. So it was a piece that was inflected by that. But I did talk to quite a few Native Americans. And I was really struck by, first, their reluctance to tell me what happens in the tent. How has this helped you? And it was a real wake-up call to me. I mean, these are normal journalistic questions you would ask anybody. And I remember Steve Benelli, who you just mentioned, saying, you know, why should I tell you Uh, and white man, the unspoken next thing. And he said, you know, we have a long history of discoverers like you coming to our world and taking things. I was just, you know, kind of shocked, but of course, yeah, why, why should he? And ultimately I found people who would describe what happened in the tent and, and the value to their people. I learned a lot in the course of doing that. And it was very humbling in a way. So 
I grew uh, San Pedro, and I was lucky to get some really good specimens from uh, the Shulgin farm, Ann and Sasha Shulgin. They have a wonderful, Sasha Shulgin was fascinated by uh, peyote cactus and San Pedro, and he was always tweaking the mescaline molecule. That was his, his favorite one to mess with. And then uh, some other friends in Berkeley gave me some, and I, you know, they're very easy to, to um, take cuttings, and the plant just wants to grow. You can just take a, a length of it if one falls, you know, and they fall over in storms and, and leave it anywhere, and it'll send up new columns. Uh, it's remarkable. But it's important for your listeners to know that at a certain moment, it does become a very serious crime when you cook your San Pedro. So growing it's fine. It's not scheduled as a plant. But if you prepare it, and it's prepared essentially like a vegetable stock, you are breaking federal law. You've crossed, uh, has you've anyone crossed been, the line. Crossed the line. Has anyone been arrested for this? I, I don't think the authorities really know about San Pedro. Otherwise, they would have scheduled it. I think it just kind of got lost in the wash. And I think it would be hard to get in trouble using San Pedro. It's, it's a fairly mild psychedelic. Well, I don't want to give bad advice. It, you could get in lots of trouble. <laughs> I don't want to be responsible. How, how far we've come mean... from the fear and loathing in Connecticut, Michael. <laughs> well, we are in a different moment. And I, and, and, Mescaline you know, for the masses. The... Here we go. <laughs> <laughs> the drug war is subsiding. It's fading. I mean, you know, what happened in the, the last election, I think, was really significant. You had uh, Oregon decriminalizing all drugs, specifically legalizing psilocybin therapy. You had several states, including red states, legalizing cannabis. And you had decrim ballot initiative pass in Washington, D.C., and several other places. So something is changing. And the right doesn't even want to fight the drug war. But I would argue, and, and this book, in a way, one of the subtexts of this book is, when the drug war ends, our confusion and problems around drugs are not going to end. In fact, they're going to intensify. Because, you know, it's one thing to have the government take charge of, you can use this, you can't use this, and law-abiding people follow that or not. But each of these drugs, we have to figure out our relationship to them. Drug abuse is, is, is a dysfunctional relationship with drugs in my view. So what's the proper container for mescaline? What's the proper container for caffeine? What's the proper container for alcohol? You know, we've kind of worked out this truce with alcohol and cigarettes. It's not perfect, but we know prohibition doesn't work. So we have all these social rules that govern the use of alcohol, and we've sort of de-socialized the use of tobacco, you know, only in the last 20 years, right? You, you can't use it in all these places where you once could. There's a stigma now attached to smoking in lots of places, which I think is a healthy thing. But the point is, it's going to be culture rather than the law that is, I think, going to shape this. And that conversation is going to take place over the next couple decades, and it's going to be fascinating. So the question is, after the drug war, what does the drug peace look like? That's where we are now. We, we have to figure that out. And we're kind of working on it with psychedelics. We know there's going to be this FDA approval, you know, this medicine path. But there's also this religious path. There are already some psychedelic churches, and there are going to be a lot more, and they're going to be tested in the courts. Bob Jesse's idea of the betterment of well people. I mean, how do we make it available? What's the container for people who are neither religious or sick? That conversation is happening right now. It's very exciting. And it will happen, I think, around opiates also. There's a real difference between making some opium 
tea because you've got a bad back or you're sad and, you know, using fentanyl or shooting up. There's a whole spectrum of ways to use drugs. Going back to that idea, that fundamental paradox of blessing and curse, ally and poison, we always have to keep that in mind and navigate that path because all drugs can get you in trouble. Oh, yeah. It's, uh, you know, Paracelsus, the dose makes the poison, certainly yeah. applies in many cases. And I was, I was talking to an acquaintance, sort of a new friend recently at a dinner, and the topic of well, the topic of drug regulation and drug development came up, and he mentioned that he he grew up somewhat religious and had never used any drugs except for alcohol. And I said, "Oh, you mean the civilization destroyer? <laughs> <laughs> that just that one?" Uh, and of course, I was joking, and you know, we had a laugh. But it's tremendous how, and I don't expect legislation to change around alcohol anytime soon. But 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 how how much the cultural context can shift the lens through which we look at these things. And mescaline is very interesting for a bunch of reasons. And it's also, at least at a basic level, kind of self-limiting in the sense that not only does it last as it stands right now, let's just say up to 12 or 14 hours, but a very common side effect is feeling extremely nauseous. Uh, so, mm -hmm. so if one might imagine the most intense seasickness they've ever felt you may feel that for six to 12 hours. And uh, of course, I think in a therapeutic And this context, is on synthetic, synthetic mescaline or, uh, or cactus? Or, or on plant-derived. Mm -hmm. And it's sometimes referred to in uh, the communities that use peyote as getting well. If you vomit, that's getting yes. well, not getting, right. not getting sick. And while I think in that container, that is accepted from a psychotherapeutic perspective poses some challenges. I do think you could probably take Zofran or some anti-nausal medication to attenuate it. But do you think, at least based on your reading and research, that there are potential applications outside of, say, alcoholism and addiction? And, and as you mentioned, and I think it's worth underscoring, part of what is, I think, attractive about mescaline is that it does not easily fall it does not obviously fall into the class of hallucinogen i know there are people who will who will right. disagree with this because at high enough doses certainly you can you can experience visuals but it doesn't produce the type of experience that you mentioned these tryptamines often involve where you're sent to a parallel dimension where you're riding mechanical elves i mean that is less the experience than a sort of heightening of reality and your sensory inputs. So I think it could end up being viewed very much the way that MDMA is is viewed. Yeah. Do you think there are any particular targets or indications for which mescaline or maybe some designer version of mescaline would be interesting? Alcoholism is the obvious one because that's been where it's had a lot of success in the Native American community. Although they use it, you know, they use it for physical healing too. I mean, they really think it's helpful with various physical, and, and there are stories of, you know, that I did hear from Native Americans about children being cured of cancer and physical ailments. I think we know a lot less about it. And I think that we need some really basic research into mescaline that hasn't been done yet. And that goes for other substances too. I mean, the, the focus has been so narrowly on psilocybin and MDMA, and there are good reasons for that. But substances like mescaline have been neglected. And, uh, you know, Journey Collab is a new startup that is 
hopes to work with mescaline and and has a very uh, elaborate system of reciprocity with Native Americans that a certain amount of their revenue is going to go to Native American communities. And there is a researcher at University of Alabama who wants to use mescaline, but in his case, it's going to be alcoholism. I think that'll be the first indication. I'm not sure what else would be good, but I would guess trauma would be worth looking at. I mean, MDMA has already proven its value there, so I don't know whether there'll be a lot of people willing to invest the resources necessary. But trauma is what it's, the MDMA qualities of it, you know, suggest that and the fact that it's been used by Native Americans so successfully. Uh, and, and in effect, they are dealing with trauma in one form or another, one symptom or another. But it, this raises a very interesting question, whether jump ahead 50 years and psychedelic therapy is a thing, it's just part of mental health treatment, Will it be the familiar molecules, you know, that have been around for a while, mescaline, psilocybin, DMT, or will there be drugs we haven't, we can't imagine right now, tweaked versions? And now there's a whole lot of that drug development going on, driven in part by desire to control patents, right, intellectual property. But all these companies, even the ones that are, you know, working with psilocybin, they're tweaking psilocybin too, trying to come up with something shorter acting perhaps, or without certain side effects. And then you have the development of all these non-psychoactive psychedelics, which to me just seems kind of nuts, but for a lot of people, that may be the way to go. And there, you know, there's a whole effort to prove, and there's some evidence it might work on certain indications, that a, a psychedelic that didn't produce any phenomenological effects could nevertheless be a healing substance. And that is very attractive to the pharmaceutical industry, to large portions of the population. It flies in the face of the general belief that it is the nature of the experience you have that's curing you, not anything pharmacological. And that question will be resolved in the next few years. And I understand that Roland Griffith made a bet with somebody who wanted to test this concept by giving a, a big dose of psychedelics to someone anesthetized, like really deeply anesthetized to see if this would actually affect him. And Roland was willing to bet that uh, it would not, uh, mm. that you have to have the experience. But we are learning that there is a pharmacological effect in terms of neurogenesis and, uh, and brain plasticity. So who knows? So we may look back on words like mescaline and psilocybin as like ancient history in 50 years when we have all these new substances or not. You know, Sasha Shulgin developed lots of new substances and we're still very interested in the originals. Yeah. So what do you think about that? Well, I think that, uh, and just as a side note for, for anyone who's has some passing familiarity with anything in the 2CX class, so 2CB, mm -hmm. if you've ever heard of something like 2CB or 2CE, which is a much trickier substance to use that can produce some very dramatic unraveling, so I don't necessarily recommend, but 2CB would be one of Sasha's, in a sense, one of his molecules. Proudest creations. Absolutely. So I think that if I look at the market forces and incentives of for-profit companies, much like we have ketamine regularly available and at very low cost, nonetheless, we now have S-ketamine and Spravato through, I think I want to say Johnson & Johnson, uh, I may be getting the, the pharma company wrong, for ongoing administration. So I think that we will see pressure, a lot of pressure by shareholders, by founders, 
by incentives alone, which then shape behavior and decisions towards non-psychedelic versions of psychedelics or close cousins that require constant administration rather than so rather than conferring potential curative effects in a handful of sessions, using it more to mask symptoms or suppress symptoms for better business models. I don't want to sound cynical, but I do think that if we study our history, this is what we see over and over and over and over again. And I think the playbooks that have been used by big pharma, big tobacco, are going to be used in this world as well. We already see that, in fact. We see a lot of the same tactics and strategies being used, which are not necessarily the best for the scientific and therapeutic innovation within the ecosystem. But that is, for better and for worse, often for worse, but not always, how the free market game is played. Uh, and I, and I, I do think that the, the comments made by uh, Francis Collins are a very big deal and hopefully a, a harbinger of things to come because right now, and I'd, I'd love to hear your opinion on this, but researchers find themselves in uh, sometimes in between a rock and a hard place with respect to funding because they can either pursue individual philanthropists who take time to wrangle, often don't have a lot of budget, and the fundraising then becomes a part-time slash full-time job for these researchers, or they can take money from for-profit players, which, as you would expect, have something to gain in the forms of strings attached. And that could be IP ownership, it could be exclusive access to safety data, it could be non-compete clauses, or non-disclosure clauses that act in some way as non-competes. I've seen some really, really bad behaviors. So my hope would be that if that happens, which I think is, is more of an eventuality, so it's a matter of trying to put safeguards in place or allowing people in different positions to act as countervailing forces, whether that's from a law advocacy perspective or from a journalistic perspective, let's just say. My hope would be that through the efforts of groups and movements like Decrim Nature, that at the very least, the other better known versions that we've been referring to, so let's just say San Pedro cactus, psilocybe mushrooms, et cetera, remain available for use or legal on some level to use. That would be my hope. How does any of that yeah. land for you? That jibes. I mean, I think we're at an inflection point and a huge amount of capital has moved into this space and uh, very quickly. And that the desire to figure out ways to take psychedelics and force them into this model of the pill you have to take every day, the pill that isn't disruptive, the pill that doesn't take any talking therapy is going to be fierce. And as will the desire to make original intellectual property. Nature will save us though. The psilocybe mushrooms will continue to grow. The mescaline-producing cactuses will continue to grow. And that as the drug war ends, people's access, their ability to do it themselves, that's not going to go away. However, Compass Pathways thinks it can control psilocybin through IP, psilocybin will defeat that, I think. Maybe not in the business context or the pharmaceutical context, but in reality. So I think that, you know, nature is irrepressible and I don't think these substances will go away. 
You mentioned uh, for your Harper's piece way back in the day that Rick MacArthur <laughs> so strongly supported that you worked on it for a year, right? That's a long yeah. time. So as a, as I a, know it's and, crazy, and that you were counting on that paycheck, right? You, I don't know if you had mortgage payments at the time, but it was I did. It was important to your uh, your livelihood and also therefore a determinant of your ability to continue writing that you had that kind of support. Do you want to, maybe this is as good a time as any, to mention the fellowship? Do you want to introduce this? Yeah, yeah. So as I've continued to stay involved in this area, I'm doing it in different ways, and as are you. And I was involved with the founding of a psychedelic research center at Berkeley that just got established last year. And we're doing a couple things that we thought would be different than other centers but that would also help the entire field. So rather than doing clinical research, which isn't done at Berkeley because we don't have a medical school, we're going to do basic science. We're really going to try to understand the brain mechanisms involved in psychedelic experience and explore what psychedelics have to teach us about things like consciousness and predictive coding and perception. We're also going to do training of guides, which is understood to be the great bottleneck going forward. I think MAPS or, or the the Funders Collaborative estimates we're going to need 100,000 guides in the next 10 years. And then the third thing that I'm most excited about, because I'm going to be directly involved and I have something to contribute, is we're going to do a, a, a major public education initiative. There's a huge amount of curiosity about psychedelics, and sources of information are somewhat limited and not always that rigorous. So I see psychedelics as becoming a very important journalistic beat in the next 10 or 20 years. In the same way, food and agriculture became an important beat beginning in the early 2000s. Before then, just to use that as a model, journalism about food was essentially the recipe page, you know, the, the pages on Wednesday in the newspaper. And journalism about agriculture was trade magazines, you know, like Beef Today or Progressive Grocer. That's where you had to go to learn what was happening in agriculture. Beginning with Eric Schlosser's, you know, important book, Fast Food Nation in 2002, and a couple other books, including My Omnivore's Dilemma in 2006, suddenly writing about food and agriculture as a unified whole, as a system, took off. And now you have a generation of journalists who are good at it and cover the subject well. And, and you can learn a lot about where your food comes from and its carbon footprint and all this kind of information is out there. So we need to do the same for psychedelics. It's a rich beat. It involves many layers. There is science, there is policy, there is business, and there is culture. And we don't have a lot of people writing about it yet. So how do we attract really talented young journalists to work on it? And that will serve everybody. And so we came up with a series of ideas, one of which you and I discussed, which was, what if we created a journalism fellowship where we would have a sum of money each year to give grants to young journalists who have cool ideas to report on psychedelics, whether it's business or science or culture or whatever. And you very generously funded it. It will be called the Ferris UC Berkeley Journalism Fellowship, I think it is. We're gonna assemble a, a, a small panel of judges with expertise in science policy and business. And every year we'll give out grants to people and help fund their journalism, whether they need 5,000 or 10,000 or $15,000 
And I know for young journalists, this can make all the difference and that they then can take these pieces and pitch them to magazines, mainstream magazines. So I'm hoping it'll bring more psychedelic journalism into mainstream magazines, some of which don't have resources to fund expensive reporting. There's been a change in journalism where journalism that's been supported by nonprofit organizations can appear in places like the New York Times Magazine or... um, or the Atlantic or Harper's, that they're willing to take funded journalism as long as they believe that the source is credible. And the fact that the UC Berkeley Journalism School, Graduate School of Journalism, will be the container for this, for the Ferris uh, Fellowship, I think will give our journalists a real leg up in terms of getting published. So that's probably going to launch in the fall. Uh, We'll start taking applications and on a rolling basis. So anyway, if you're a if you're a journalist with a really good idea, I hope you'll get in touch with us and we'll, we'll publicize it, you know, how to do it. If you follow my Twitter feed, we'll definitely have it there and perhaps in Tim's newsletter as well. <laughs> uh, so anyway, I, I'm very grateful for Tim to Tim for recognizing, you know, the value of this. We're also hoping to do some other things. We're going to do a newsletter starting this summer. That will be free, and we'll have a digest of news uh, about psychedelics, about the field. I've just hired a young science writer to, to do that. I think she's going to be terrific. And it'll report on new research as well as other developments. Eventually, we hope to do a podcast, and we're going to do a massive online course, too, Psychedelic Science 101, that I'm working with my colleagues to develop. So I'm hoping that Berkeley will become a center for you know really high-quality journalism related to psychedelics. We all at the center are very grateful to uh, to you, Tim, for for supporting this effort. Well, I I couldn't be more excited. I have have watched this field so so closely over the years, most recent years, and couldn't think of a better person to head it up. And also, not sure if if you touched on this or if we touched on it perhaps earlier, but you have sort of experimental data, so to speak. This is not the first time that you've offered these types of grants. So I would love to yeah. maybe hear about uh, how your experiments in other subject areas have turned out, because it will be, this isn't the first rodeo, in other words. No, actually, about eight years ago, I started a, a similar fellowship, which is the 11th Hour, Wendy Schmitz Foundation, 11th Hour Berkeley Journalism Fellowships. And this was to cover food and agriculture. And it's organized somewhat differently. We take 10 people a year. We get several hundred applications. People who have an idea, young journalists, you know, 30s, early 30s or 20s. And we pick 10 and we give them a $10,000 grant to report their stories. And we also give them help in shaping those stories, pitching them and helping them with the editing and introducing them to editors, some of which we'll do with this grant. It's not going to be quite as hands-on because I think these people are going to be in a slightly different stage in their career. But we found that this was incredibly helpful to people's careers. I'll give you one example. There was a a young journalist named uh, Nicola Twilley who had a really cool idea about the refrigeration revolution coming to China. A country without good refrigeration is only going to develop to a certain level. And refrigeration has all sorts of implications for the food system and climate change, all kinds of things. And she had this cool idea about going to China as they're at the embarking on this revolution. And she wrote a really good pitch and she sent it to the New York Times magazine. And they said, well, 
is a great story, but you know, you don't have any experience reporting from China or, you know, we can't afford to send you. If you were a name writer or whatever, we would. So she came to us and we gave her a grant and she went back to the Times and she said, well, what if I can cover all my expenses? And they said, great, we'll take your piece. They took her piece, they published it. It was very successful. And it led to a book, which is coming out, I think next year. She also met someone else in that fellowship and they started a, a very good podcast whose name I'm forgetting. We can put it in the uh, show notes also. Okay, I'll send it to you. Anyway, so it's, you know, and now she's a New Yorker staff writer. And uh, wow. so, you know, and she still writes a lot about food. The right boost at the right moment in someone's career can make such a difference. So we're hoping this is, you know, we're going to build a cadre of, of really good journalists who have the necessary skills and skepticism and investigative abilities to hold this space accountable. Because we're moving from a time where the scientists have held the microphone about psychedelic research to a moment where the entrepreneurs are going to hold the microphone. And as you pointed out, they've got a very different agenda. And there's some cool ideas coming, and there's some really bad ideas coming. And one of the ways you hold an industry accountable is with good journalism. And we saw that with food. That led to real changes in the food system. So we, we're going to need the same in psychedelics. It's going to get much more contentious and much more complicated in the years to come. So we're hoping that we'll have a group of journalists up to the task of holding everybody's feet to the fire. <laughs> Couldn't be coming at a better time. I am, I'm so excited about this. So, Michael, there are two more things I'd love to touch on. One is related to the book and one is going to bring us full circle in a way. I'm holding up my mug for those who can't see it. <laughs> all right. Mine. All right. Coffee. So as we all know, it has always been the case that the Brits drink tea and Americans just love their coffee. What is that a true statement? No. <laughs> uh, yeah, it is. I mean, they're definitely a tea culture and we're more of a coffee culture and there's a specific historical reason for it. <laughs> I do see coffee now getting, when you're in London now, you're very aware of coffee and there's a lot of great coffee houses. But initially, when coffee and tea were first introduced to Europe, which happens in the same decade, in the 1650s, it was coffee that took off. And coffee became this tremendous fad in England. And there were coffee houses. There was one coffee house for every 150 Londoners. I mean, they were everywhere and people were spending hours and hours in the coffee house, which became much more than a place to drink coffee. It became really a social media. You would go to the coffee house to get the news. It was about information more than it was about the drug, although the drug definitely played its role. And there were different coffee houses for whatever your interest was. So if you were an artist, you would go to this one in Covent Garden. And if you were a scientist, there was one associated with the Royal Institution, the great scientific institution in London. And if you were in business, you might go to Lloyd's, which became Lloyd's of London, because you could actually write a policy on your ship and your cargo there. And then people would go from one to the other conveying news. So it was initially a coffee culture. But the English colonies weren't good places to grow coffee. They didn't have any coffee-growing colonies. They had tea-growing colonies like India, and they had a foothold in China. So beginning about 100 years later, tea became so much cheaper, and tea took over from coffee 
by and large. And it was just about colonial politics and, and the nature of imperialism. Countries with good coffee-growing colonies like Amsterdam, like the Netherlands and like France, they were much more coffee. And when America was started, we were a tea culture because we were getting all this tea that the uh, British East India Company was, was bringing in. But of course, with the revolution, we revolted against all things English. You'll recall the Tea Party from your high school history textbooks. And the, the tax on tea was so offensive to the colonists that they threw a whole shipment of tea into Boston Harbor and switched to coffee. And we have been the coffee country ever since. Caffeine in general has been very important to capitalism in that it makes us better workers, makes us more efficient. So one of the stories I tell in, in the chapter on caffeine is, is just how important caffeine was to the rise of capitalism. It's important to know just how drunk everybody was before caffeine <laughs> came to Europe. People were drinking all day long. They drank for breakfast. They drank for lunch. They drank for dinner. There were alcohol breaks instead of coffee breaks uh, on farms. Um, and this was all fine when you're doing physical labor. But once you start operating machines and, and you have to deal with double entry bookkeeping, a drunk workforce is a serious problem. So enter coffee and caffeine, which was, it didn't completely displace alcohol, but it became, it diminished the need for alcohol. One of the reasons people were drinking so much was not just to change consciousness, but because alcohol was safer than the water then. When you ferment, you disinfect. But coffee and tea were even safer than that because you had to boil water. It was the first time there was any reason to boil water. And so the countries that adopted hot drinks were much healthier and had much better public health. So caffeine's this huge boon to the Industrial Revolution, people who can safely handle machines. And also, you can't have a night shift without caffeine, right? We were stuck with the circadian rhythms of the, of the rhythms of the sun. And only when caffeine comes along could you extend the workday. And, you know, the best proof of this idea is, if you think about it, the institution of the coffee break is like a, what a wild idea. Your employer gives you time off to take a drug and provides the drug. <laughs> Why do they do that? Well, it was discovered in only in like the 1900s that employees who got coffee breaks at mid-morning and mid-afternoon did more work, performed better. And I tell the story of the company where the first coffee break was instituted. So caffeine has changed the course of civilization in many, many ways. It really contributed to the rise of rationalism in Europe too. A, a certain way of thinking that's very linear, very rational, very logical. And I understood this in part when I got off coffee. Uh, you know, the reason I got off coffee was I, I mentioned that challenge from Roland, but I also wanted to see if I could learn, reacquaint myself with its power. Because if we use it every day, basically it gives us a little lift and it stops withdrawal, the symptoms of withdrawal, which are really nasty. And every morning, you know, you're starting to go through withdrawal till you have that first cup. And then it's like, everything's okay and you get back to baseline. But if you've been off it for a few months, that first cup, is psychedelic. <laughs> it is it is as powerful as uh, any drug I've had, and uh, and was wonderful. And and the, the the only sad thing is you can't hold on to that power. <laughs> by the by the third day, oh no. <laughs> so anyway, I had quite a journey with caffeine, as did our 
our civilization. But it's a wonderful substance. There are no good reasons not to consume it. Well, with one exception. I mean, I looked at the whole, all the health issues tied to it. Now, you can abuse caffeine. You can have too much till you're, you know, and anxious people will get more jittery sometimes. But it's good for your heart. It's good for your blood pressure. It prevents certain kinds of cancer or it's associated with lower rates of certain kinds of cancer, dementia. It improves your memory. It improves people's performance in athletics. It's kind of amazing. The only negative is it messes with your sleep. Even if you stop drinking coffee at noon, it has a quarter life of 12 hours. So a quarter of the caffeine that you ingested will still be in your bloodstream uh, at midnight. And what it robs you of or can is deep sleep, which is very important for our health. So there are some sleep, most of the sleep researchers I interviewed don't consume caffeine. I was like, ugh. (laughs) (laughs) But on balance, we should count ourselves fortunate. And why did this plant produce this chemical that has this effect on us? Well, it began as a pesticide. It is a pesticide, not in human brains. <laughs> and and one way it strikes me that caffeine has changed civilization is by fooling us into thinking, or what percentage of us, 90% of 90% us? use it, worldwide use it regularly. And by the way, it's the only drug we give our children, if you think about it, in the form of soda. Yeah. It's wild. Uh, it's convinced 90% of people on the planet that their baseline, their so-called normal yeah. waking consciousness, is it's actually sober, but it's not. It's, yeah. it's infused with caffeine. We uh, are. We are creatures of caffeine now. It's so transparent in its effects. It doesn't feel like you're high, certainly. But this way we operate, our ability to focus. When I was writing How to Change Your Mind, I learned that there are these two different kinds of consciousness. There's lantern consciousness and spotlight consciousness. Lantern consciousness, you're taking in information from all sides. It's kind of a little ADD-ish. Kids have lantern consciousness. The ability to narrow your focus and block out everything else is really critical to adult life, to work, to scientific discovery, to writing books, to so many things that we do, fixing cars. That spotlight consciousness is nurtured by caffeine. And that's a huge gift. It's interesting. I asked Roland Griffith, so is this a boon or a bane to our species? And he said, well, it's definitely a boon to our civilization. Because now we have to get up at a certain time and be somewhere at a certain time and perform certain functions. But that's not the same as saying it's a boon to our species. We may have been better off and healthier when we were on the cycles of the sun, when we did have a broader expanse of, of information. So I thought that was a good cautionary note that he sounded. He's a very wise man, as you well he, know. He is a very wise man. Have you ever, this might seem like a non sequitur, but have you ever explored coffee culture in japan have you looked at all at their coffee culture it's really fascinating which is a which is a lazy adjective but you see a lot of the sort of meticulous attention to detail that you might associate with a tea ceremony Uh brought into these elaborate rituals in some places around coffee now of course you can get your like dime store shitty coffee yeah. first thing in the morning to go to your job. But there are also these uh, these bespoke 
hole in the wall places where you can get a 45 minute pour over and they have lots of rules around what, what you can do or can't do with their coffee. They might give you a piece of toast. There's a place called Inokashira Park, Inokashira Koen, where I remember going to this, uh, this coffee shop, which it was fancy, but it wasn't expensive, if that, if that makes any sense. Mm-hmm. They took it very, very seriously, and they sold two things. They sold coffee, and they sold, they sold toast that had the face of a panda bear burned into the side. <laughs> and those were the two things that you could purchase. So, <laughs> How was the coffee? Some, the coffee was great. The coffee was fantastic. And for those people interested, there's a term, it's kisaten or kisa sometimes, K-I-S-S-A. There are a number of videos that you can find on YouTube looking at this sort of kisa culture, K-I-S-S-A. Hmm. And actually, I've, I've been meaning to ask you, have you done anything in video or television related to how to change your mind? Funny you should ask. Yesterday, I was shooting for a documentary series that we're doing on how to change your mind. I've been working on it for the last several months, and it's going to be a four-part Netflix series looking at four different substances. We're going to look at LSD, psilocybin, MDMA, and mescaline and do an hour on each. So I'm very excited by it. You know, I've done this with previous books. Cooked was a four-part Netflix series, and Botany of Desire was on public television. And I, I'm very interested in how you translate one medium into an, an into another. But also, you know, you just reach people you don't reach. Not everybody reads books. Books are the germ, but it's really important to reach people where they are. That's yeah. Exciting. So I'm hoping by the end of the year or or early next year, it'll be it'll drop. That's super exciting. The visual medium also is a great gateway drug, pun intended, for the longer form writing also. I would imagine a lot of people will discover your writing and have discovered your writing through. Without question. Yeah. They start, they, they watch it on television and then they realize there's a book. Yeah. That's definitely part of it. Our challenge though, in doing this is how do you recreate the psychedelic experience? <laughs> Not using Paisley tie-dye exactly. visuals. <laughs> and, and the instructions to the, the special effects people that we interviewed and we found it fantastic firm that's doing some amazing sequences is no 60s references no paisley no kaleidoscopes because that was never right anyway that's just yeah that was the technology (laughs) they had to make things look weird so they're coming up with some very new ways to imagine the psychedelic experience for the screen and that's what i'm most excited about can't wait to see it my last question i guess is in a way also related to gateway drugs metaphorically speaking gardening if I'm going to step into the world of gardening and recognizing that I'm prone to starting many things, but I don't continue many things. Mm-hmm. So if I, I want to start off on the right foot and not read any textbooks or anything to begin with, are there any resources, any suggested starting points, things to do, maybe first projects? How do I even begin to approach this? Because gardening is so broad a term. Yeah. It, it just includes so much. And I, I will have some property on the East Coast. I can kind of do whatever I want. I could also do something in Texas. So I have options available. Where would you suggest that I start? Well, are you interested in, in growing food or growing ornamentals or growing psych I, or growing psychoactives? Because <laughs> that's I mean, an option. I would, yeah, I, I mean, I would be I would be open to all of them. I think I'm interested in food. Kind of depends on the turnaround time on the food. 
since I, I, I'm not in one place all year round, mm. uh, and I know nothing about harvesting schedules and so on, I'm very interested in growing culinary herbs, mm-hmm. for instance. I could see growing tobacco, possibly, mm-hmm. uh, if, if that is kosher. Your book scared the oh, shit out of me when it came to growing. <laughs> oh, no, it's <laughs> completely... I, I grow tobacco, too, and it's a beautiful plant, and an yeah. unjustly maligned plant, I would, I it, would argue beautiful plant that I've, I've seen in travels through Mexico and elsewhere. It takes a lot of space. It's a big, yeah. I think what would be interesting to me is having a few plants or a few projects that teach me a lot about different principles of gardening, mm-hmm. if that makes any sense without biting yeah. more off than I can chew. Well, one way to start, I mean, not having seen your property or know that much, I know it gets very hot in Austin in this summer is to, Build a raised bed. Start with one raised bed, which you buy some wood that doesn't decay easily, like cedar or redwood, and you make a box essentially that's about a foot high, and it can be any length you want, but it shouldn't be so wide that you can't reach every point uh, in it. And fill it with soil, you know, which you can either get at the garden center or have a dump truck come over. The advantage of a raised bed is it's kind of idyllic circumstances for the plants. Whatever the local issues are with your soil are not, you know, and if you're living, if you have an old house, there may be lead in your soil. So it's, you want to test your soil if you're going to use local soil for food or or herbs. And it gives you this ideal growing medium because the land is never stepped on. So it doesn't get compressed. So the the roots can really travel and you can plant more densely in a raised bed because the roots can go down rather than sideways. There's a book called Square Foot Gardening that's really good. John Jeevens, who is an Englishman who really was one of the pioneers of organic gardening, and he was a great believer in raised beds. And in that, you can experiment, and you could take one end and do all herbs. And herbs are wonderful in that they don't need a lot of attention. Most of them are pretty tough. Some are annuals, and they'll die every year, like basil you have to replant every year, but many of them will reseed or just come up on their own again. And you know, I have a house that I don't visit that often and all I plant now there. I used to have, this is the house where the opium story took place. I mean, I still own it. And I only plant herbs and garlic now because they can do very well without me. Garlic is the best crop because you plant it in the fall and ignore it. And whether it's dry or wet, it will come up and it has no pests bother it. It's absolutely foolproof. And it's very easy to plant. You just buy big cloves of garlic in the market in the fall and divide them up into single cloves and stick them in the ground and they'll do their thing. You need a house call. I have to come, I have to come visit and, and look at the situation. You do need to come visit. You do need to come visit. I, I, I endorse that suggestion. Yeah. Start with John Jeevens, though. He's, uh, that was a big influence on me when I started gardening. And, uh, Square foot gardening. And, and watch out for those woodchucks. <laughs> <laughs> you know there are I, I, there are no woodchucks that I'm aware of here in Austin, but we do have armadillos. I imagine they're pretty enthusiastic about eating anything and everything they can get their uh, prehistoric paws on. But and I'll, deer? I'll start, do you have deer? There are deer here, uh, not nearly as many as you would find certainly in a rural part of the East Coast. But, so you'll you'll learn pretty quickly what your pests are. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because I bet. you know when when the news gets around the neighborhood that there's some good vittles, uh, everybody shows up, <laughs> and and then you then you have to start thinking in terms of fences and things like that. 
Just a quick interruption, and we'll be right back to the show. The book suggested and referenced by Michael from John Jevons, Jevons is J-E-A-V-O-N-S, is actually titled How to Grow More Vegetables. The subtitle is Than You Ever Thought Possible on Less Land with Less Water Than You Can Imagine, and there is a forward by Alice Waters. So once again, it is John Jevons, J-E-A-V-O-N-S, and the title is How to Grow More Vegetables. We'll link to it in the show notes on tim.blog slash podcast. Now, back to the show. Michael, it's always so much fun. People can find you online at michaelpollan.com, at michaelpollan on Twitter, at michael.pollan on Instagram. The new book is This Is Your Mind on Plants. It's just a fascinating romp through history, your own personal adventures, and fear and loathing in Connecticut, of course, in one portion. <laughs> and I always enjoy your writing and also our time in conversation. Is there anything else that you would like to say? Any closing comments, any requests of people listening, anything at all that you'd like to add before we wind down this conversation? I don't think so. I think we've covered a lot of ground, as, as usual. It's always a pleasure talking to you. We have so many interests in common. This is always a labor of love. So anyway, thank you. Thank you, Michael. To be continued, I'm going to take you up on that house call offer. And for everybody listening, as mentioned earlier, we will have show notes, copious show notes for everything that we discuss. You can find links to everything, descriptions and so on at tim.blog forward slash podcast. Just search Michael Pollan and look for the most recent episode. And until next time, thank you for tuning in. Hey guys, this is Tim again. Just a few more things before you take off. Number one, this is Five Bullet Friday. Do you want to get a short email from me? Would you enjoy getting a short email from me every Friday that provides a little morsel of fun before the weekend? And Five Bullet Friday is a very short email where I share the coolest things I've found or that I've been pondering over the week. That could include favorite new albums that I've discovered. It could include gizmos and gadgets and all sorts of weird shit that I've somehow dug up in the uh, the world of the esoteric as I do. It could include favorite articles that I've read and that I've shared with my close friends, for instance. And it's very short. It's just a little tiny bite of goodness before you head off for the weekend. So if you want to receive that, check it out. Just go to fourhourworkweek.com. That's fourhourworkweek.com all spelled out and just drop in your email and you will get the very next one. And if you sign up, I hope you enjoy it. This episode is brought to you by Headspace. Headspace is your daily dose of mindfulness in the form of guided meditations in an easy to use app. Now you might ask yourself very reasonably, there are 2000 plus apps for meditation. Why would I use Headspace? Headspace is one of the only meditation apps advancing the field of mindfulness and meditation through clinically validated research. Headspace is backed by 25 published studies on its benefits, 600,000 five-star reviews, and more than 60 million downloads. So if people keep telling you to try meditation and you're like, when would I do that? When would I possibly have time? You should check out Headspace. If you have 10 minutes, Headspace can change your life. Headspace offers a really light lift and a lot of features to keep you going, which is uh, part of the reason that I've used Headspace for years now. So whatever the situation, Headspace can really help you feel better. Overwhelmed? Headspace has a three-minute SOS meditation for you. Need some help falling asleep? Headspace has wind-down sessions their members swear by. And for parents, Headspace even has morning meditations you can do with your kids. Headspace's approach to mindfulness can reduce stress, improve sleep, 
boost focus and increase your overall sense of well-being. And it really starts with very, very simple practices. And if you look at my case, for instance, I just went through one of the basics today with the co-founder, Andy, I think it's Puticum, could be Puticum, I'm not sure, but former monk turned into co-founder of Headspace has the most soothing hypnotic voice imaginable. And I did a three minute meditation, something like that. It's easy, it's fundamental, and it always puts me in a better space. So I'm going through the basics. Even though I've meditated for years, I'm going through the basics once again. And I would suggest to anyone that they consider starting there. Headspace makes it easy for you to build a life-changing meditation practice with mindfulness that works for you on your schedule, anytime, anywhere. We all want to feel happier. We all want more peace. And Headspace is meditation made simple. Go to headspace.com slash Tim. That's headspace.com slash Tim for a free one-month trial with access to Headspace's full library of meditations for every conceivable possible situation. <laughs> you can break glass in case of emergency in almost any situation and find something on Headspace. This is the best deal offered right now for Headspace. So check it out. Go to headspace.com slash Tim today. This episode is brought to you by 8sleep. My God, am I in love with 8sleep. Good sleep is the ultimate game changer. More than 30% of Americans struggle with sleep, and I'm a member of that sad group. Temperature is one of the main causes of poor sleep, and heat has always been my nemesis. I've suffered for decades tossing and turning, throwing blankets off, putting them back on, and repeating ad nauseum, but now... I am falling asleep in record time, faster than ever. Why? Because I'm using a simple device called the Pod Pro Cover by 8sleep. It's the easiest and fastest way to sleep at the perfect temperature. It pairs dynamic cooling and heating with biometric tracking to offer the most advanced but most user-friendly solution on the market. I polled all of you guys on social media about the best tools for sleep, enhancing sleep, and 8sleep was by far and away the crowd favorite. I mean, people were just raving fans of this. So I used it, and here we are. Add the Pod Pro cover to your current mattress and start sleeping as cool as 55 degrees Fahrenheit or as hot as 110 degrees Fahrenheit. It also splits your bed in half so your partner can choose a totally different temperature. My girlfriend runs hot all the time. She doesn't need cooling. She loves the heat and we can have our own bespoke temperatures on either side, which is exactly what we're doing. Now for me and for many people, the result, eight sleep users fall asleep up to 32% faster, reduce sleep interruptions by up to 40% and get more restful sleep overall. I can personally attest to this because I track it in all sorts of ways. It's the total solution for enhanced recovery so you can take on the next day feeling refreshed. And now, my dear listeners, that's you guys, you can get $250 off of the Pod Pro cover. That's a lot. Simply go to 8sleep.com slash Tim or use code Tim. That's 8, all spelled out, E-I-G-H-T, sleep.com slash Tim or use coupon code Tim, T-I-M. 8sleep.com slash Tim for $200 off your Pod Pro cover. <laughs> 